After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, O my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra rose and made the leading priests and the Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we need your help. Uh, we say this is your word. Uh, we trust that you speak to us even now in it. Uh, but I have to confess, even hearing that again, even after reading that and studying that this week, um, I'm not sure what to do with it. It is difficult to hear what happened in Ezra chapter 10, especially. And so I ask for your help this morning. Would you, would you give us understanding? Would you show us how this is your word for us, of how it speaks to us, how it brings us life. Would you open our eyes and our ears, our minds and our hearts to receive what you are saying and to be changed by it. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I read uh, recently about a very exclusive party held in New York City. A very select group of people was allowed into the bar where this event was held. And the people who gained admission to this party, they weren't the very rich. 
Uh, they weren't only the very successful at their vocations. Uh, they weren't only the sophisticated elites. The people who gained admission to this party were the people who had a photo ID and could present a photo ID that proved that their name was Ryan. It was a party only for people named Ryan. And the flyer for, for the party said, first name must be Ryan, no Brian's allowed. <laughs> now that is a silly example of a serious issue. Whenever you have an event, whenever you have a group, whenever you have a community, a family, anything identifiable as a whole, even a self, you always create an inside and an outside. You cannot let everyone into everything in every way. As much as we want and value inclusion, exclusion is inevitable. And the issue becomes, where is the line, and how do we relate to it? And that is the issue being dealt with in Ezra chapters 9 and 10. And it's an issue not only in these chapters, it is an issue throughout the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Almost every other chapter in these books is a list of names. There is this constant concern of who is on the list, who is in the family, who is included in this community of God's people that returns and rebuilds their home with him. Who is on the list, who isn't, and why? And the way that Ezra and Nehemiah wrestle with those questions, wrestle with that issue, is important for us. Because as we have seen throughout this series, what Ezra and Nehemiah do prepares the way for, anticipates what Christ is doing as he gathers the family of God, as he builds his church, as he builds those who believe in him as the living temple of his Holy Spirit. Who's on the list? Who's in the family? And why? Are Brian's allowed? And so I want to, for us this morning to wrestle with those questions with Ezra. And I want to come to these difficult texts and consider this issue in two parts. We'll talk about the line of exclusion and then the possibility of inclusion. So first of all, the line of exclusion. We met Ezra last week, and we met him and, and came to know him as an expert in God's law who returns to the city of Jerusalem to continue the work not only on God's house, but on God's family, on God's community. And he does that by teaching God's law. And we saw how his teaching, the teaching of God's law, connects 
beautiful ideal of the temple, the beauty of holiness, the beauty of God dwelling with his people to the reality of their daily lives. But when Ezra and his teaching arrive in Jerusalem, he does not find a pretty situation. His teaching of the law instead exposes how far from that ideal God's people were. And the primary evidence of the gap between where they should be and where they were was their marriages. They, and especially the leaders and the leading priests, had married people from the communities around them instead of peoples from within their community. And the prophet Malachi shows us that many of these situations involved a Jewish man divorcing his Jewish wife in order to marry these women. And they did this not for romantic reasons, for e- but for economic ones. So these were not Romeos in love with Juliet. These were men who were attempting to accrue wealth and land to their family heritage through these marriages. And God's law had clearly said not to do that. Why? Well, it's really important to emphasize that this is not a matter of what we think of as ethnicity or race. Notice the language of chapter 9, verse 1. It says they had not separated themselves from the people of their lands with their abominations. And then that's repeated in verse 11, and then that's expanded in verse 14, where Ezra talks about the people of the lands who practiced abominations. This is not about race, it's about ritual. It's not about ethnicity, it is about the practices of worship. The peoples of the land had joined themselves with other gods. They had bound themselves with other spiritual powers by ways of rituals that involved human sacrifice, that involved practices that would be inappropriate for me to describe in this context. And God says, because of that, because of what they have joined themselves to, don't join yourselves to them. Because they will draw you away from me. They will draw you into binding yourself into those gods and into those destructive practices. This isn't about race. It's about ritual. It's not about ethnicity. It is about worship. Plenty of non-Israelites in the Old Testament had married into God's people. Zipporah, Moses' wife, was a non-Israelite. Rahab, a Canaanite, Ruth, a Moabite, both not only married into the people, but became a part of the genealogy of King David and the genealogy of Jesus. But in those cases, what had happened is that all attachments to other gods had been left behind. And that was not happening here in Ezra. And that's the problem. And God commands this 
not only because the powerful influence of a spouse, but because of the powerful imagery of marriage. Marriage was the most common way that Scripture described how God covenantally related to his people. It was the image of the temple. God had drawn near. He was dwelling with his people. He had said to them, I am yours and you are mine. He had pledged his faithfulness to them and he had asked for their faithful loyalty in return. That's why the sin described in Ezra chapters 9 and 10 is described over and over again as faithlessness unfaithfulness. They were being unfaithful to this marriage relationship with God. And that is the line of exclusion. The line of exclusion is idolatry. It's worship. It is the line between those who give their highest loyalty and their deepest devotion to the true and living God and those who don't. And so who's excluded? Everyone. Everyone is excluded. That's what Ezra shows us in his prayer. He says, we are drowning in our guilt. Our guilt has gone up to heaven. He then narrates the history of idolatry in God's people that had led to the exile. And then he says, and now history is repeating itself again. And he ends the prayer by saying, No one can stand. Everybody is outside. Everyone is excluded. And in saying this, he anticipates and is echoed by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, in the book of Romans, who says, all have fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous. No, not one. No one seeks after God. Everyone, because of sin, is far from him and the life that is in him. Because of sin, we're all Brian's at the Ryan party. Now, maybe you think, no, I'm not. I haven't practiced rituals that involve human sacrifice. I haven't bowed before a stone in the shape of a bull. Not an idolater. Well, on the week where we are grieving the loss of Tim Keller, we need to remember what he said again and again in his sermons and in his book, Counterfeit Gods, which is that idolatry is turning even a good thing into an ultimate thing. It is anything that is more important to us than God, that captures our minds, our imaginations, our hearts, than God himself and God alone. And we have all done that with money, sex, power, relationships, other aspects of our existence. We have all done that. And so, because of that, we are on the wrong side of the line of exclusion. So what do we do? What do we do about that? Are we simply left outside, trembling 
in the cold? Well, no, consider, secondly, not only the line of exclusion, but the possibility of inclusion. What does Ezra do? I've already mentioned that he prays, but before he prayed, he ripped his clothes, he tore out his hair and his beard, and he stopped eating, and he sat appalled. And the people came trembling and sat appalled with him. That word appalled means utterly desolate. Something very akin to despair. And then he prays. And so what Ezra does is he enacts and then he articulates the desperation the desperate nature of this situation. And it's interesting, in his prayer, he doesn't ask for anything. He doesn't ask for forgiveness. He simply narrates the pattern of idolatry, past and present, and then says, no one can stay. And then as he continues grieving in chapter 10, the leaders of the people come to him with this plan for restoration. This plan for restoring their covenant faithfulness to God. And as a part of this plan, they were going to send away these wives and their children. And understand, they're not kicking them out to the streets. They are sending them back to their gods. They are sending them back to their ancestral homes. But even with that, isn't this baffling? Isn't this confusing? Doesn't this seem wrong? And this is one of those places in scripture where I, even as a seminary trained pastor, have to say, I'm not fully sure what to do with this. But let me mention three things that I think are clear. First of all, the law doesn't command them to do this. The law commands them not to marry in this way, but the law doesn't tell them what to do if they in mass have married in this way. Second, the New Testament explicitly instructs Christians not to do this. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 that if a believer is married to an unbeliever, if at all possible, except in cases of Adultery or abandonment, which would include abuse, except in those cases, if at all possible, the believer should stay in that marriage. And that does not betray holiness. It, in fact, and Paul uses this language, it brings holiness to the spouse and to the children. Third, and maybe most important, this solution doesn't work. However we judge it, 
this solution doesn't solve the problem. The problem recurs in the book of Nehemiah, and then the stories of these two books, the story of the Old Testament ends with the problem unsolved. It ends with the pattern of idolatry unbroken, the problem of unfaithfulness unsolved. So what do we do? This seems pretty hopeless. Again, it seems to leave us hopelessly on the other side of the line of exclusion. Is there no possibility of inclusion? Well, there is, and we need to go back to chapter 9. And we need to see Ezra in his desolation praying. And we need to ask, where and when did he do that? He was at the house of the Lord, he was at the temple, and he did it at the time of the evening sacrifice. Now maybe you'll remember a few weeks ago, what did the people do first when they arrived at the ruins of Jerusalem? They built the altar and they restarted the morning and the evening sacrifice. And why did they do that? Well, because it enabled the fire on the top of the altar to be always burning. And what did we learn about that fire? What is that fire? Well, it is the constancy of God's presence with his people. It is the visible expression of his steadfast love. It is the symbol of his constant faithfulness to his promises. Promises like we read in Isaiah chapter 62, which says to the city of Jerusalem, you will be renamed. You will no longer be forsaken. You will no longer be called desolate. You will be called, my delight is in her. You will be called married. So do you see what Ezra is doing he is bringing the impossible unfaithfulness of the people and he's making it vulnerable to the faithfulness of God. He, at the evening sacrifice, brings the night of their inconstant love for God to the light of God's constant, steadfast love for them. And why does he do that? Well, because that's the only possibility of inclusion. The possibility of inclusion is not the people figuring out how to overcome their unfaithfulness. It is rather the faithfulness of God overcoming and transforming their unfaithfulness. Which is what he has done at the time of the evening sacrifice as his son Jesus hung dying on the cross. See, 
What happens in Ezra is not a prescription for what we should do. It is a preparation for what Jesus has done. As he, at the time of the evening sacrifice, hung, bearing, drowning under our guilt. Drowning, dying under the guilt of our unfaithfulness, our faithlessness, so that he could welcome us in to the never-changing, always-continuing faithfulness of God. Jesus, at the time of the evening sacrifices, bears the darkness of our inconstancy so that he can show us and give us and transform us by the constancy of God's love for us. He is our inclusion. In Charles Dickens' novel, Bleak House, there's a character named George. And George has done some things in his life that he is deeply ashamed of. And these things have hurt his family, and they have especially hurt his mom. And so towards the end of the novel, he goes to his brother, and he tries to convince his brother to convince their mom to write him out of the family will because of his shame, because of his guilt. And he uses the language of being scratched. He says, I want her to scratch me from the inheritance, to scratch my name out of the will. And when he makes that request, his brother laughs at him. And he shows him that in that request, he doesn't understand their mother at all. And he doesn't understand her love for him. And he says, no, George, you must make up your mind to remain unscratched. And that's what the gospel says to us. It says to us in our guilt, in our shame, as we sit appalled by our sin, convinced that we shouldn't be in the family, we shouldn't be on the list, the gospel says, because of Jesus, you must make up your mind to remain unscratched. Because Jesus, at the time of the evening sacrifice, hung on the cross, to become our ever-faithful groom. And he brings us into the family. He puts us on the list, but he not only puts us on the list, but he gives us a new name. We are named not forsaken, not desolate, but my delight is in her. Married. You see, in Jesus, even in our inconstancy, we're all renamed Ryan. So let's pray. 
Father, would you help us to know that assurance this morning? That in Jesus, we're on the list. We're in the family, even though we're convinced that we aren't deserving of that. Even when we see all the many ways that we are not worthy of that. That he's given himself to become our groom. That our unfaithfulness is gathered up and transformed by your faithfulness in him. That our lack of love is overcome by your steadfast love. Some of us sit appalled this morning. Not only appalled by our own sin, but we're appalled by the many ways that sin has broken our world and has affected our experience and our relationship. Father, with the fire of your steadfast love, would you meet us there? With the warmth of your faithfulness, would you comfort us? Would you join us to yourself in that new covenant and help us to know that you will never let us go. You will always keep us. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand? Let's express our trust, what God has shown us, what he has revealed to us in his son Jesus. We'll do that.